Okay, so I've been spending a lot of time on LinkedIn recently. Just um, I got a month free trial of the um, premium. So I figured, you know, I might use it as an opportunity to get more clients to kind of think about, you know, see what's out there, expand my horizon. Anyway, I stumbled across some interesting information related to Colorado's new law, which was an equal pay for equal work law passed last year, and it came into effect this year in 2021. Anywho, so one piece of it, right, is to try and ensure that there's more transparency around salaries. And so Colorado now requires any employer that is advertising positions in Colorado to list the salary. So, um, mm-hmm. which, which I think mm-hmm. is, I think is great. Right. But mm-hmm. what, what has happened, it seems like is now employers that are external to Colorado. Um, so folks who are advertising for remote workers, right. People who are in New York state or Massachusetts or California or Wisconsin or whatever, they're in some cases refusing to advertise in Colorado or expressly prohibiting Colorado applicants from applying so that they do not have to publish their salaries Their argument being that it's a competitive edge that they keep their salaries secret, right? Which I think is BS. But it was such an interesting response because you're now saying that your competitive edge is more important than trying to address this like massive elephant that is the lack of equal pay for women and trans people and non-binary people in the workplace, right? So I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I don't want to work for you if that's your perspective. Oh, well, look, I've, I've had quite a few years working with the hiring process for professors and higher ed staff, graduate students, undergraduate students, the, the full gamut. And let me just say, I believe fully that that is going to backfire. So I think we need to talk about that. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, I have been spoiled a bit when it comes to publishing salaries. And the reason why is because I have been in higher ed for quite a bit of time, but the majority of that time has been in the state of Maryland, where literally right now, y'all, if you stopped what you were doing and went and Googled the Baltimore Sun and Googled anyone's name in the state system of Maryland that works for any college or university, you will find their salary pay ban. It's public. Uh, We work for a public institution. It's been public for years. Now, it has not been published in the job descriptions as they're recruiting, but they're published. And so when I went in to negotiate for my previous job, it was easy to negotiate because at least I had a pay band because I had the records of other folks to look at. And so that became really, in my opinion, a competitive edge for any institution that wants to have an inclusive, deep and wide pool of applicants. So Mm -hmm, what what are these folks talking about? This is interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a big fan of publishing salaries because in my experience, if you don't publish the salary, you've got something to hide, right? Like I think about when there's massive inequity in in the pay, whether that's hourly wage or salary that your organization has it's not of benefit for you to you to publish in the job description because then current employees are going to learn 
you know, what people are earning or what you're bringing in new people at, and then they're going to get pissed. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's been kind of a predominant way of thinking for a really long time. And in some cases, you know, organizations um, prevent their staff members from even talking about salary. I don't know how, how popular that is anymore, because I know there are laws across the country that prohibit Mm -hmm. that, but I think that still does exist in places. So, you know, yeah. Publishing salaries in terms of being inclusive does a number of things, in my opinion, right? Like I know what I'm coming in at, which means it's not going to be an old boys club. It's not going to be this negotiation about Mm -hmm. um, who gets what and perhaps bias coming into that salary conversation. It's also good for people who are in the organization who can see what new people are being brought in at. And so Mm -hmm. they know that they're not getting um, overlooked in terms of their salary increases. It also lets me know, you know, is this organization serious about paying me what I'm worth? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I think it's a really important move and, um, you know, shame on you to those organizations, those businesses outside of Colorado that are banning Colorado employees or applicants, Mm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this is what's interesting in a really broad perspective about what you're bringing up, though, is that I don't believe those types of policies were helpful pre-COVID. And now I'm sure it's not going to be helpful kind of two through and beyond COVID. And the reason why I bring that up is because I remember when everyone was going home to quarantine in March of 2020, and a lot of folks were really freaked out and afraid that they would be downsized or lose their positions because people would be working from home. Even if it was a short-term layoff, people were very scared. Now that we're coming two through and beyond a pandemic, hopefully, um, there are a lot of folks now that say, I really enjoyed, not the deaths of, obviously, but the secondary benefits of being able to work from home, being able to have more flexibility, more productivity, more accessibility. So therefore, I have options now. And the cutting edge organizations are the ones that are saying they are willing to build in flexibility. And so now I think folks like those organizations that are not willing to publish salaries, they are now saying that they want to go back to an old normal that didn't work then anyway, but it's definitely going to backfire now because people have even more options. And so, you know, I feel like your point around publishing salaries is one issue under an umbrella of things that people need to be paying attention to if they're hiring folks to work for their organizations. That's one of many, but I think, you know, let's go back to the selection process you know, are, how are you selecting folks? Because I think I've been from a higher ed space. Lisa, you've definitely been in a higher ed space as well. We're used to search committees, even raggedy exclusive search committees, but there were still committees. Nothing really was a decision necessarily made by just one person. They could at least say on record, there was a committee that was assembled and they were responsible for the process of hiring. Well, we've worked at large institutions that can do that, but I still think some type of committee is really important to even start this process. I mean, mm-hmm, wouldn't you say, mm-hmm. you know, you want kind of a eclectic group of people that sit on a search committee so they can really keep each other in check within the search process before we even get to publishing the salaries? I think it starts kind of at the beginning. Yeah, I agree with you. I think search committees are really important. And I think that being a small organization doesn't um, prevent you from having a search committee because I have worked with uh, nonprofits mm-hmm. here that have had two or three staff members, right? And they're hiring that third or fourth person. And so what they do is they bring in stakeholders, they bring in partners, 
individuals in the community that they've worked with to serve on the search committee. And the search committee is maybe three mm-hmm. people, but right. it's more than just a single person in the organization that's making the decision about hiring that individual, whether that's a part-time hourly position or a mm. full-time salaried position. They're still getting multiple opinions and trying yeah. to do the work by consensus because we each bring different experiences and understandings mm-hmm. to that process. So I think you can do mm-hmm. it. You don't have to, it, it isn't an exclusive thing for large organizations. Small ones can do that too. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. So I think, okay, we have at least two things on our little list here when it comes to HR stuff. So search committees, you know, having one, <laughs> you know, right. having a search committee, you know, even in a smaller organization, publishing the salaries would be a second thing. I would even say, Lisa, adding all the benefits. What are all the benefits of the organization if they're brought on? So whether it's the salary itself, the hourly wages, what about other benefits in regards to, you know, do you get some type of professional development where you get a little budget that allows you to garner some more skills? You know, I think all of that is really important because this is where it backfires because some people are going to overbid themselves out and some people are going to underbid themselves out. And that's not even mentioning gender inequality when it comes to hiring. But if you have literally no clue what someone makes in your industry, because this is a aspirational role or experience, even there's no way in the world that someone should be expected to be psychic and magically, you know, you'd be better off just throwing, <laughs> throw, throwing a dart at a wall and guessing which number it's going to hit because Hmm, yeah it's just not a good scale so i think publishing the salary and all the package if you will of benefits even with a part-time role i think that would be more attractive because people know what they're signing up for rather than what you were saying the Mm -hmm. converse of that which is you know we want to be more competitive well what are you being more competitive for more diverse and equipped employees in the pool, or are you being more competitive to see how little you can pay people for what they're actually worth? Which, which direction are you being competitive in? Yeah, that's a really great point, right? Because competitiveness can be, you know, towards the bottom of the barrel as well. And, um, you right, don't want it. Right. It shouldn't be a rush to the floor. It should be a rush to the top. And I think that the other, the other piece you're making me think of is you shouldn't be asking for prior salaries and you shouldn't be asking for salary mm. expectations too, because the numbers are there that, yeah. you know, women earn less. And so when they put in their prior salary, it's going to be lower than what a guy puts in. And they often, like you had said, you know, undersell themselves. So when you're talking about salary expectations, they say something that is woefully under what they really should be earning because of the way that our culture treats women's work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, that formula is constantly underbidding based off of how we've been impacted over time. Um, So yeah, that's a major point, major point. Well, and here's my other thing too. And this is just a pet peeve that really didn't have anything to do with DI, but now it does have an issue with DI. Can we please stop this process of having people upload a resume, for example, and then you have to turn right back around and type in every freaking job you've ever had since birth. And the years and what you did, and it's probably been so long, you might not even remember what you did. That just drives me bonkers from a technology perspective. And so, you know, when it comes to uh, deepening that pool of applicants, how can we make it easier? I mean, can't we use a QR code and people can upload it from their phone? I mean, 
there's got to be something easier than this repetitive process that is so exhausting. It weeds out people who have the credentials, but they don't have the patience for this foolishness. That's just redundant. It's so redundant. I can't stand it. Well, and then when they're like, upload your resume and we'll kind of transfer the data from your resume into the form and it always messes it up, right? So then you have to go back through and edit everything and you have to delete fields and- and you think about when we're talking about accessibility, right? Not everyone has access to um, a computer. Not everyone has access to three hours mm-hmm. in a day to have to fight with the system. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they're on a public computer and they just want to upload the resume and leave it at that. Or maybe they don't have a resume right. that's good enough and they just want to enter the information, right? So like give right. someone right. a choice. But there's within state systems though, right? You have to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of your transcripts, you know, you have to fill out 16 different levels of forms. You have to add references. You have to do all this stuff on the front end that just is tiring. And I remember one time I was applying for a position at a state uh, college, you know, and they wanted me to upload my undergraduate transcript, master's transcript and PhD transcript. And I'm like, you real you just need the P, the proof that I have the PhD because I couldn't get the PhD without the masters or the undergraduate right and then I have my undergraduate in the UK so I, <laughs> that's not it, I, it's not easy for me to get a transcript so so oh, yeah you yeah know, so and then they, yeah adding on to that it's not easy for you to get a transcript and that's another level of accessibility because I don't know about your institutions that you're an alumni of, but for example, this was back in the day where I think it was like $8 for every transcript that you requested. Yes. And fortunately, yes. my J- my beloved JMU Alumni Association always paid that to waive it, if you will. But there was money going into someone's pocket. But at my other institutions where I hold degrees, I had to pay for those. And so if I have to pay for a transcript every time, that's that's problematic. The, the application process is not easy. And yeah. it's almost like they're they're vetting out those that have enough patience to fill out the application rather than those that have the qualifications to do the actual job. It just, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. And then also I will say connected to the application process and you're setting up your job description and how you're writing it is mm-hmm. if you are advertising an entry-level position, right? At a sports organization, at a coaching firm, at a race, you know, event organizer, and you say this is entry level, you cannot require experience because then it ceases to be entry level. <laughs> right. Exactly. There you go. I, I, I don't get it. It's you must have experience. Well, you said entry. That means I'm entering the field. I have no experience. Come, come on. Yeah. yeah, that that makes no sense at all. None. Yeah, None. This, well, isn't, this isn't sports related, but there was a thing at the Washington Post. I think it was the Washington Post or the yeah. New York Times where they were advertising for interns, but they were requiring. Was it? In, it was interns, I think they were requiring the interns to have two to three years experience working in a newsroom. And oh so the, the critique was who has that? Right. The people who have that are individuals who have a lot of money or parents who work in the news business and have had the opportunity to be exposed to that. So who are the, Mm -hmm. who's the pool that you're going to get? Right. That's right. So you got to think about that when you're asking for a particular type of experience um, in triathlon in biking in whatever. Right. And you're asking for certain things that you're going to narrow the pool. Right. That's right. You're going to dry up the pool. If you, if you continue to make it smaller and smaller, well, now, okay, so once they get the applications in hand, I now 
<laughs> have more issues with the process because the application review is usually based on this vetting process of a litany of stereotypes. Let me put it that way. It's, you know, what people assume by what's on the paper. So if someone has a certain type of name, there's presumptions. If someone has an address in a certain area of the city, there's a presumption. If someone went to a particular school, for example, if there's an HBCU, a historically black college or university listed on the resume or the CV, then all of a sudden there are stereotypes as to what that person's race is. I just really think we have to be very careful about the vetting process. And it's called a blind review in higher ed. I realize that that's ableist language. So we'll have to figure out some new language around that. But what can we do to appropriately mask the areas of the resume that are not relevant through the vetting process? So it should not be relevant to me, even if you, if I'm working here in Maryland and I need to hire you and you live in Alaska, your address really doesn't matter as long as you show up to work on time, do your job well, and that's it. I should not care about that. But that becomes this fodder for stereotyping that then vets people out of a process. And so that review is really key to making sure that you keep people in Agreed. and you're not, yeah. you know, basing it off of the people that you like, because likability is actually not part of the job description. It's can right. they do the job? So, you yeah. know, adding to your environment is really key through that, that review process. And I think it also um, can weed out a little bit of nepotism too, right? Like if I know, oh, I know this person, their, oh, their yeah, application is yeah. coming yep. across my desk. I know this. I'm not even going to really read it. I'm just going to pass it on. And I know that that happens a ton in sports organizations and in, in the mm-hmm. industry. So if there's a way right at that get-go to kind of remove all identifying information, so it's right. just right. kind of, it's just experience. And then you're making decisions and you don't actually find out who that person is until a bit further down the line. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now, when I was um, at my previous job in a university setting, we actually trained, spent five full days, 40 hours training what we called inclusion advocates. And they were people that were positioned outside of the hiring department that sat on the search committee to help folks de-bias the process. And so it wasn't about whether you know, Lisa rides a certain type of bike or not, it's does she have certain skill sets where she can function in any any setting? And so I loved training those folks because those inclusion advocates then, they had less to do with the qualifications of each individual, but more to do with how is the process being de-biased? How is your thinking um, interrupted in ways where you don't think in the same way so that you're replicating the same folks you already have? So, you know, I know inclusion advocates were a big production at my previous institution, and there's lots of models around the country, but I think there's a mini version of that that can happen, even in small organizations where you have a yeah. person that's well aware of what's legally acceptable in hiring practices and what's not and helps keep people focused on that. Um, So I Mm -hmm, think that's a really mm -hmm. key piece, Um, which then goes into yet another pet peeve for me, Lisa, that people don't know about, which is those lawful and unlawful interview questions. You know, it's, I, I, I don't know if you have any experience being asked those questions, but you know, I was, I was asked flat out in an interview. Oh, so we heard that you were engaged to be married. I was, but I purposely did not wear any jewelry into that interview. I did not mention any of that. I didn't mention anything about marital status, any of that. 
And so that was an unlawful question. So if I wanted to sue that organization or, you know, any type of legal action, I could have because that was completely out of bounds. And so there's mm-hmm. a litany of those questions, but I, I doubt too many people are aware of what those are and what the alternatives are yeah. Yeah. for those questions. So that's a whole area too, that we just have not delved into deep enough. I think it's a great point because I think with smaller organizations, I mean, some organizations, you know, hire uh, like an employment council that they can ask for advice around hiring processes. But, you know, a lot of small organizations don't, right? Particularly in the sports industry, they just kind of like, you know, roll through and do the best that they can. And maybe they, you know, hire a friend or a friend of a friend, et cetera. And so, you know, if they are doing interviews, um, they're probably not super educated on those things. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if those interviews come across as really casual, it's very likely that questions or conversation topics come up that probably shouldn't in the context of an interview. So I do think mm-hmm. even if you're a two-person organization and you're looking to hire mm-hmm. a third, or if you're a 400-person organization and you're looking for the 401st, right, you've got to educate yourself on what is and is not lawful to ask. That's right. That's right. And especially in this age where, you know, I just had a great conversation with Dr. Sean Mark Anderson that was on our podcast before talking about corporate social responsibility and sport. And we know that I wouldn't necessarily say we're in a more sensitive context, but we are in a context where corporate social responsibility and the awareness of that is rising. And so given that people are less, um, less deterred to seek or or take legal action if something like this happens. Other folks may be like, mm, I'm not going to say anything because I really need the job. So let me just let that go. Let, let me just let that roll off my back. But now we're in a very litigious society that's also calling right. organizations to be more responsible. So don't be surprised if you ask that question about somebody's age, somebody's kids, somebody's title, or, or even uh, an honorific, you know, asking some certain questions please keep yourself out of trouble. If you are an endurance yeah. sport business or organization, keep yourself out of trouble mm-hmm. by at least being aware of what those questions are. And, you know, you can, first of all, do the right thing, but secondly, stay out of trouble as well. It's, it's a lot of mutual benefit that goes on there. Um, and then Lisa, I think, you know, really at, at this point, I mean, there's so much to review, but I think one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle is after you've done all this hard work to get the right person in to get this person that adds value, adds uh, perspectives on DEI into your organization, let's hope they don't create a revolving door where as soon as you get them in, they're right back out. You know, there there has to be something that keeps them there um, for the Mm -hmm. longer haul, hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I think you really need to be thinking about professional development um, and you also need Mm. to be thinking about mentorship programs. And that's particularly true with employees of color, um, disabled employees, women employees, trans employees, because they are likely going to be in the minority. Right. And so folks in leadership tend to be male and white, not always, but tend to be. And so you have this um, issue in the literature where folks tend to mentor people who look like them. And so what that has done is created a really great escalator for white men in business. Um, And that's true in sports organizations too. And it's become really challenging for anyone else to kind of move up the pipeline. So thinking intentionally about establishing a mentorship program 
in your organization, again, even if you're only a small organization, maybe there's an external person in the field that could be a great mentor for this new employee to assist them with professional development and growth and provide coaching. It doesn't have to be someone that's in your organization. But, yeah, you know, setting right. something up so that and so that some people are getting mentorship so that you don't have a situation where some people are getting mentorships and uh, and other people aren't. Because some of this stuff also operates on an informal basis. And when you have that's those right. informal systems, that's when you create, you build disadvantage into the system. Because mm-hmm. the folks that mm-hmm. get the informal mentorship, right, the drink after work, that kind of stuff tend to be the same folks who are in leadership positions. And so then we just continue to promote um, people who look the same and there's not a lot of change in the organization. And so I think that it's, that's a huge piece in terms of diversifying your organization is what is that mentorship like? What is the pipeline Mm. for promotion and how are you intentionally and thoughtfully making sure that informal structures are not Mm -hmm. uh, primary and that you, you're really, managing um, more formal ways to help me people move up. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, Lisa, last I checked, neither one of us is like a guru in human resources, but I think we've seen enough mistakes to at least give people like a, a punch list of things to think about. So, you know, these seven, you may want to start with these seven. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of folks that I really appreciate and uh, respect that are vice presidents of human resources and they do this for a living and they have all the SHRM certifications and so forth. And they're still coming to me saying, I have a uh, a gaping hole in this particular area as it pertains to DEI work. What can we do better? So Lisa, I'm hoping that we gave people a good perspective um, on how to do this well, or at least some starting points for this work, because it's tough work. It's, it's cultural work. Uh, in that you have to change the culture of the organization, but I think it's really important. It should be a, a priority. If you if you have people that work for your organization, which you do, then that means you mm-hmm, have human mm-hmm. resources, which means you need to think about DEI work. So yeah. this is like a mandatory punch list here, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely lots to think about. And with that, let's give you something else to think about with our new segment. <laughs> yes, I love this segment, y'all. Are y'all ready? Hell yeah. Hell no. We have another segment of hell no versus hell yeah. And let me just say, Uh Lisa, I am so tickled every time we do this segment because I see things every day that could be included in this segment. So I don't think we're ever going to have a shortage of ideas here. Um, So what what have you seen um, in regards to, to hell no? I know you've seen something out there. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go with the hell nah this week. Or well, maybe I did the, the, the nah in my <laughs> British accent. I always think I must sound hilarious last time, but what I want to um, <laughs> shout out to is the women's tour de France. Um, so that is not the, that's not the nah, right? Mm, um, right, right. That's exactly. actually really yeah. good. So that's kind of a, yeah, but we have another <laughs> year that we're going to talk about. So you probably saw in the news that there is going to be a women's tour de France, eight stages. And uh, a friend of mine pointed out to me that one of the stages that they have kept um, for the women's tour is actually a climb on a mountain that has Mm -hmm. a legend attached to it. And Mm -hmm. the legend is that 
um, during the Thirty Years' War, uh, women in the um, kind of in the villages, you know, by the mountain, fled the uh, villages because they were scared of the threat of being sexually assaulted and massacred by the Swedish who were coming in in this Thirty Years' War, and so oh, they wow. ran. Mm-hmm. They ran up this mountain, and rather than being um, assaulted, they died by suicide they threw themselves off into the lake below oh so yeah so so really uplifting story there right so that legend is well known in the tour de france this particular climb is um very well known and so it's just interesting to me um thanks melanie mitchell poppy sports another shout out to you for bringing this to my attention it's interesting (laughs) to me that this particular climb Mm -hmm. was left in like yeah, what, yeah. What's yeah. the reason that you would leave in this climb? Because there are plenty of climbs that you could include, but this oh, one of has, has folklore and legend that is particularly harmful to women. And so I guess it's, um, you know, the name of the the English translation is like the plank of beautiful women, um, because there was someone oh, who wow. like carved into stone or carved into wood after this happened, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. women. And so um, that is my wag of the finger, I guess, because I am mm. not sure what was being thought of there in terms of leaving that particular climb in. And um, maybe it was thoughtful. Maybe it was intentional. I don't know. But my guess is people didn't even think about it. Uh, yeah, there you go. Exactly. Exactly. Le- lack of intentionality and thoughtfulness for, for sure on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, let me give you my hell yeah that I just stumbled upon um, as I was. Uh, let me just be clear. I'm, I'm a little busy. Okay. I've got two young ones and trying to do all the things y'all. So I'm sitting in the pickup line at my son's school and I'm trying to take a zoom call. The issue with my zoom call is that I'm looking in the settings. I'm trying to fix something when it comes to the sound. Lisa, let me tell you, zoom is a hell yeah, because you can actually choose your reaction skin tone. So when I went into the meeting settings and then I scrolled all the way down to the bottom, it asked me to choose my reaction skin tone. So those emojis where you have a thumbs up or a thumbs down or a clap your hands, that type of thing. There were six different skin tones to choose from Lisa. So I was Mm -hmm. thrilled to see that there were options. I chose a little medium brown skin tone to hopefully match as closely as possible to mine. But I was thrilled that Zoom provided that option. Um, Even a throwback to June, I remember logging into Zoom and they also had their very simple Zoom logo in rainbow. Um, So shout out to Zoom for all the things that they are Mm -hmm. trying to do and updating in response to being more inclusive of everyone that uses their platform. So kudos Zoom. Yeah, I know, right? Because emojis were were yellow, like yellow was this... um like non-racialized color, skin color, but really yellow is just a stand-in for white, isn't it? Exactly. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because that used to be all we had, um, whether it was on, you know, our smartphones or, you know, on these virtual platforms, and now they're giving us more and more options. So I am grateful that I can, well, here's the thing, Lisa, I don't know about you, but last time I checked that yellow emoji, it, it is not represented representative of you at all or right, me right. or anyone I know, frankly. Yeah. So I'm like, who was the yellow supposed to really represent to begin with? Eh, well, I think I'm, it's I'm, like, 
it's to de-racialize it, right? But it, it doesn't really. And that's the same with the Simpsons, right? It you think of the Simpsons, right? They're all that's yellow it. except for Apu, who's an Indian man who has brown skin and um, the Asian American right. reporter, um, you know, she has a different color skin. So therefore yellow is white, right? It's just always there blowing my mind. Yeah. Uh, oh, incredible. Well, Zoom is no longer guilty of solely having the yellow option. So kudos to Zoom. Woohoo! women's tour de France. Meh. Let's, let's think about that. Um, because there, there's some challenges going on there, but, uh, if y'all have suggestions for hell no, nah mm-hmm. or hell yeah, please send them our way, respond to all of our social media. We are now, we have been on Instagram. We are on LinkedIn. Where else are we, Lisa? I mean, we're at, you and I are everywhere. So Facebook, yeah. except I'm not really on Facebook, but unfazed is on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Unfaced is on Facebook. So reach out to us as you see hell naws and hell yes, because we want to include them, shout we them do. out yeah. and send more people their way. So hell yeah, y'all. That was a good one. All righty. Hey everyone. This is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. The Unfazed Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at Try to Defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Tri. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.